Hello, and welcome to So You Think You Can Rule Persia, the podcast where we rate and review all the kings of Persia from Diochis to Yazdegerd the Third. I'm Serial, and my pronouns are they, them. And I'm Umberto, my pronouns are he, him. All right, it's been a while. I am excited for a new episode, finally. Who are yes. we talking about today? Well, everybody, welcome to episode 18.1, which is to say Alexander the Great, King of Macedon. Ah, the prodigal son! <laughs> it's him! He's finally arrived. We'll get to find out what the boy did on the other side, because, well, last episode we just covered the Iranian side of the coin, now we're covering the Macedonian side of the coin to see what was Alexander thinking, what was he doing... In his childhood. That right, whole correct. stuff. correct. Because we had another prequel episode, last episode, with... Wait, I need my notes. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot to get my notes! With Darius III, which I have li- literally no notes. I took no notes. Wow. This has been... This is good, going great. The, I hope there's no exam. because we'll be redoing everything today, so you get Good. to go back through it. This is usually so, what happened on go. my university classes, to be honest. The first, like, couple of weeks, it would go fairly well, and then from then onward, there would be less and less notes that I would take in a class, until <laughs> I, well, had to just study on my own, or ask for someone else's notes, because my brain would just not work. <laughs> yeah, so. that's fine. We just have recaps. It's all right. Yeah, well, the good thing about a podcast, I can just re-listen to it whenever, which That's more classes should be recorded for the benefit of everybody. That'd be helpful. But yeah, just so the listeners are clear, this is part one of two of the Alexander the Great episodes. The next one is going to be Alexander the Great, King of Persia, where we'll find out the second bit of his story, the one that we haven't heard yet, mm. and well, how it ends. So that'll be interesting. Oh, I can't wait. Okay, so this is Alex part one. Let's Alex part one. Alexander, either Alexander the Great or Alexander the Destroyer, depending on <gasps> where you're from. That is very so fair. we'll find out why. It is never just one story, right? I mean, history is written by the winners, so... Yes, and today we're talking about the winner of the story, so he looks good in it. <laughs> or at least in certain parts of it. The propaganda does him favors, let's put it that way. Yeah, we'll find out. His story is connected to a lot of different narratives. People like to give him a character arc. Because there are two character arcs of Alexander before we start. How cinematic. The typical one is he is our golden, beautiful, wonderful boy, taken from us too soon. Oh, what wonderful things he could have achieved if he had lived longer. Mm-hmm. I know that one. Character arc two is he was our beautiful, wonderful boy, but then when he went to the East, he was corrupted by foreign luxury and power. And ah, this is why we shouldn't have monarchies. Ah, look at him. This is why he was destroyed. It was his downfall to be on the East, because apparently that... Huh? (laughs) Question mark? (laughs) But we'll find out what's the truth of it, what's not in, in the current episode. So we're not going to really recap the last Darius episode. All you need to know is Alexander the Great destroys the Achaemenid Empire sometime along this episode. We'll look at the detail as we go on. To be fair, we didn't start with a very strong Achaemenid Empire with Darius III. He was already the second cousin twice removed of the sister, of the brother, (laughs) of the other uncle, of, you know. So thanks to Begos, we did not have the strongest uh, line, you know, and honestly Darius III did whatever he could. 
for a puppet king who got rid of his puppet master, props to him. Yeah, he did what he could and he failed miserably trying. Yeah. <laughs> he did what he could and suffered what he must. Okay, so let's get started with this episode. But before, since this is our first king not from Iran, let's change our entire cultural context to move somewhere else to Macedon. Oh boy, fill me in. What's it like over there? Well, the kingdom of Macedon is in a strange place, both politically and geographically. (laughs) Oh yes, Macedon, that strange place over there. Yes, it's an exotic land in the far west where we don't have much information. Very (laughs) mysterious. It's weird because it's placed at the edge of the Greek world. Because it is directly north of all those typical Greek places we heard about. You know, Athens, Sparta, Thebes. Mm -hmm. The ones we know of. But it's directly south of all these non-Greek barbarians to the north. So the Macedonians see themselves as basically the shield of the Greek world against this barbarian threat to the north, but the Greeks see them as these savages to the north who don't even have elections, they just have a monarchy. What are they doing? They drink too much, they smell weird, they talk funny. Eh. So the Macedonians see themselves as Greek, but the Greeks don't see them as Greek, or at least not so far. But, yeah, Macedonia has been governed for centuries, pretty much since the time of Diochis, really, by the Argiad dynasty, which claims descent from Heracles himself and, consequently, from Zeus. Mm-hmm. So, good start. Excellent. But you shouldn't really imagine it as a nice, strong, stable kingdom like the Achaemenid Empire at its apex. It is closer to the Median Empire at its time. Because, yes, there's an official ruler, yes, there's a king, but he's more of a first among equals than an absolute monarch. So if he wants the nobles to do something, he has to make sure the nobles like him. Like, they're not just going to obey because he's the king. They're going to obey because, yes, you're the king and I like you. So there's this whole cycle in Macedonian history where Kings try to centralize power to become stronger in virtue of being kings, but then they're murdered by the nobility, and then the nobility installs some weak puppet kings. Weak puppet kings eventually get stronger, murdered again, keep going. By the time we get to Alexander's dad, Philip, Mm -hmm. half of the kings of Macedonia have been murdered in the last hundred years. Oh, fun. And a quarter of them have died violently. Another quarter, it's unclear. Oh, I see. Just, so it's uh, not great for job security. Murder's natural cause. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there we go. But, you know, uh, we've already heard of Macedonia a bit in the podcast because it's been in contact with the Achaemenid Empire since the time of Darius the Great, when King Amintas I, who is the great-great-great-great-grandfather of Alexander, submitted as a vassal king to Darius and then his son, Alexander I submitted to Xerxes I. But as the Achaemenid Empire withdrew from Europe, Macedon continued to do its own thing, slowly expanding against some of the barbarians in the north, asserting its power against some of the Greek city-states in the coast, trying to make sure everything was in order. This all changed when Philip became king of Macedon. Philip II, who was Alexander's father, and we also heard a bit during Artaxerxes III's episode. Mm -hmm. Because Philip, well, he starts 
He starts off as a young prince not in line of succession. He is actually kept as a hostage by the Thebans, hmm. where he becomes the lover, and we'll expand on this later, uh-huh. he becomes the lover of an important Theban general and manages to gather a lot of useful information from this because the Thebans were advancing a style of warfare and they defeated Sparta recently, they were the hegemons at the time, and so Philip manages to learn a lot on the field. Then he comes back to Macedon, he finds a child king, overthrows him, places himself on the throne. And while Philip uses the information from his time abroad very well, because he decides to reform Macedon. Hmm. He has decided that they're no longer going to use their old way of fighting. They're going to introduce a new way. Right. I remember us talking about Philip because the Empire was actually a little bit concerned about him. Also the Greeks. Because yes. he was doing quite well. Just not well enough to take over the Achaemenid Empire back then. But he was a threat that we heard of. Yes. Yes, because at the time we had Artaxerxes III fixing everything, yeah. but Who did a when great everything job. falls apart, well, there <laughs> oh, we go. I would have loved to have seen Artaxerxes III versus Alexander. That would have been... I want that fanfic. That and Philip's expedition are great what-ifs, because mm. what would have happened if Alexander had a real strong rival with a collected empire? You don't know. But anyway, so Philip manages to reform the army. He invents the Macedonian phalanx, where instead of being like the usual hoplites that you imagine from, from Greece, where they have big shield, short little meter and a half long spear mm-hmm. or two meters where they stab people with, Philip turns that into overdrive. He has six meter long spears that every soldier carries, a massive shield, and all of these six meter long spears are placed in several rows so that if an enemy is coming at you, they have to cross six meters of pointy stuff before they can <laughs> finally even try to hurt one of your guys. Right. So that's a great setup. But that's not all, because Philip has learned from the Thebans' use of cavalry. Because he uses this hammer and anvil technique, whereby the phalanx stays strong and holds the enemy still. It holds it in place. And then Philip comes round with the cavalry and attacks the enemy in the flanks or from the back and destroys them entirely. So the hammer is the cavalry, the anvil is the phalanx. Nice. Cool strategy. Yeah, and so with all of this great power, Philip begins to make Macedon fill the power vacuum in Greece, because Thebes was declining and Macedon has decided to take its place. So as we saw in previous episodes, Philip manages to slowly expand and consolidate his power, And he also has several marriages with foreign allies that he can use to his cause. And important among these is a woman called Myrtale, who comes from Epirus, a kingdom to the west of Macedon, which, again, was considered by the Macedonians also a little bit more barbaric than they are. So there there are levels. So Philip marries this woman, Myrtale, and he has visions. Ooh, fun. Let's have some omens. Yes! Because this woman dreamt the night before her wedding that she was struck by a thunderbolt in her womb, causing a fire to spread, spreading far and wide before it was extinguished. So, interesting omen to start from. Next, it's Philip's turn for omens, because he has another dream. He dreams that he is sealing up his wife's private parts with wax. Uh, uh, all exactly. right. Um, 
and he is impressing upon this wax the seal of a lion. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I I have several issues with this, but yeah, wha- fair enough. How, I j- how much wax do you need? I don't I, know. The ancient sources do not report the amount of wax. Also, ouch! <laughs> just no. I you need to. You need to drip that, like, have it be melted, and I just, I just rather not. I assume it's not hot wax. That doesn't sound good. But, no, you know. no, it sounds terrible, <laughs> actually. Uh, okay. So, yeah, Philip is confused. He goes to a Sears and says, Is this a weird dream? Was I having some weird cheese, or is this an omen or something? And the Sears say, No, 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 my lord. It's a wonderful omen, because, well... You don't seal up empty vases, right? You only seal up vases that are full. So clearly, your wife's womb is full with a young heir. And, well, the seal of a lion means that this heir has the spirit and strength of a lion within him. So congratulations, my king. You will be a father soon. Cool. But then we move on and we have another omen. Because a thing you need to know about Myrtale is that she is kind of weird. (laughs) Or at least all the Greeks think she's super weird because, well, she's a foreigner. She's semi-barbaric. So immediately, that's just, you know. Yes. And she has a specific form of worship that involves snakes. Ooh. And everybody's a little bit concerned because they see this strange foreign woman coming with her pet snakes that she carries around. (gasps) Oh, yes. Oh, no. Is she a witch or something? What's going on? Well, that's so cool. I have a snake. I can relate. That's, you know, (laughs) fellow snake keeper. How do you do? Just make sure not to have weird dreams. I wonder if she had an enclosure or something. Presumably. I assume she had to feed the snakes or something. There must have been something to... So anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway. Cool snake lady. Yes, so one day when Philip is coming home from work... (laughs) <laughs> from the office. <laughs> yes, he's coming home from the office. Da, 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 da. Putting his bloody spear in his back pocket, he goes over. <laughs> and he sees that the door of the bedroom is slightly open. So he sort of peeks in to see his wife. And he sees that Mirtale is there embracing one of her pet snakes on the bed. Mm-hmm. And so Philip is confused and a bit threatened. So he goes to a seer and says, saw this thing. Should I worry? What's going on? And the seer says, no, 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 my king. This is a great sign. I mean, pros and cons, actually. Because, you see, your wife was laying with the god Zeus, Amon. Uh, okay. So, good news, your heir is probably going to be divine. Bad news is that you looked at a god without them wanting you to look at them, so you're probably going to lose the eye. (gasps) Oh. Well, just one eye. So you looked at a god just oh, with one eye, like oh, okay, okay. Eye, yeah. He was I peeking was like, through what? the door. Yeah, I see, I see. Oof! Don't peek through doors. Just don't do that. It's generally bad. You practice. never know. If there's a god on the other side that might not want you looking at them, but also there might just be a person on the other side that doesn't want you looking at them. So just don't. Yeah, yeah. You might lose an eye. <laughs> so Philip goes off to war, and he hears news. Great news, Your Highness, Myrtle is pregnant. And Philip is quite busy in these days because he has a siege of a city that he needs to take. And mm-hmm. also he has his chariot participate in the Olympic Games because all the Greeks see him as a barbarian. Would a barbarian win the Olympic Games? I don't think so. Huh? So there we go. Checkmate. So Philip goes to besiege the city and 
as the prophecy foretold, an arrow hits him in the eye and he loses oh, his eye. no way. Seriously? Yes. Oh my god. Also, <laughs> terrible wound to recover from. I hope he didn't get infections. I mean, it wasn't great. We might actually have his skull somewhere. It's unclear, but we have a skull in a royal tomb with a serious injury along the correct eye, so maybe. Ooh, that is really cool. Actually, now That's I want fun. to see this skull and see what, <laughs> like, how we would identify it. Yeah, that'd be quite interesting. But yeah, so time goes on. Philip is drawn off to recover, but one day he receives three pieces of news. Ooh. First piece of news is... Your Highness, the city you are besieging has surrendered. Congratulations. Awesome. Good. Next is, Your Highness, great news. Your chariot won the Olympic races. You're now an Yay. Olympic winner. Excellent. Awesome. News three is, Your wife, Mirtale, has given birth to a healthy baby boy. She's called him Alexander. Uh-huh. The <laughs> Finally, divine, after 20 the minutes, we're yes. Finally. And also, Philip decides, you know what? I'm going to celebrate this multiple victory by renaming my wife. Since I won the Olympic Games, from now on, she will be called Olympias. Okay. Can you do that? Just Apparently you can if you're the king. I, I, uh, like, that makes sense. There's a lot of things you can do if you're the king. But just very strange to just decide to change someone else's name. I don't... I... Okay. Happens, uh... you know. They do it a lot. They're Macedonians. I don't know. What am I going to tell you? <laughs> so finally, baby Alexander is born. And we get news from the East because the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the world in Anatolia, was burned down by a guy who wanted to remain immortal in his name by burning down one of the wonders of the world. So, you know, screw that mm, guy. Yeah, that's terrible. Don't do that. Just as a rule of thumb, just don't. Yeah. But then the local Persian magi ran around at this terrible sight, beating their faces and crying aloud that a woe and a great calamity for Asia has been born this day. So, yeah, Alexander's starting with many omens. So there we go. Yeah. I wonder how many of these were added after the fact. Because, like, with Cyrus, it's very easy to have a remarkable <laughs> person and then be like, Ah, yes, I knew about this. This was foretold. You know. Oh, definitely, yes. I mean, if you thought Cyrus's childhood was fanciful, then have a look at Alexander's. It's a real right. challenge there. I need them to meet up, Cyrus and Alexander. Just exchange. I mean, they do meet up. One of them is dead at the time, but they meet up. Oh, that's true. He goes to visit the grave, yeah. right? Oh! Yeah. Okay. And Alexander's reading the Cyropedia. He's very into it. Excellent. But yeah, so little baby Alexander grows up with his mother. And his mother tells him how he is such a great young man, because on his father's side, he descends from Heracles and Zeus. And on his mother's side, he descends from the great hero Achilles of myth. Mm -hmm. As you do. So, yeah. All the good genes in there. We're told by all the sources that Olympias makes sure that Alexander sees himself as this great man in the making, that he is going to be the greatest that ever was. And that he is going to be incredible and that he's the heir of Achilles. I wanna be the very best. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I apologize to everybody listening. If that made it into the ep episode, you can blame Umberto for it. Yay. And yeah, he's actually really obsessive with the Iliad because, well, you know, he's descended from Achilles. He's being told that he has a great destiny in the future. And 
Plutarch tells us that this little nerd slept with a dagger and a personal copy of the Iliad under his pillow <gasps> as a kid, which oh, is adorable. I love him. Uh, little kid. Yeah, way to make a gifted kid with burnout in the making, you know, just hyping him up to be this very important, <laughs> very incredible person with so much potential. Yeah, that's great. I mean, the trick is dying before you get to the burnout bit, and then you'll be remembered as the great. That, mm, <laughs> you know, don't give that advice to people. Don't. Yeah, maybe don't, but you know. Yeah, so it seems that Alexander always wanted to do great things. He was really impressed, and he was also kind of worried that Philip was going to do everything and there was going to be nothing left for him to do. Oh, come on. Of all things. Because Plutarch tells us that Alexander was talking with his friends, saying, oh, you know, I'm really worried that my dad is going to be the first in everything and me and my friends are going to have nothing to achieve. But anyway, Alexander grows up and his ambition extends to horses. <laughs> okay. Because Plutarch is here again. Hooray. Oh, hey, Plutarch. By the way, Plutarch, we haven't introduced him very much, but yeah. he is a Greek author from the Roman Empire, from the Golden Age, roughly. And he sets out to write biographies of Roman and Greek characters and compare them. Oh. So he has a biography of Alexander the Great compared with the biography of Caesar. Oh, interesting. He has a whole series of things. We'll, we have a lot of Plutarch to go through, but Plutarch likes these sort of anecdotes and he's great for it. Mm. So Plutarch tells us about how Alexander obtained his horse, Bucephalus. Oh yes, cow f head. Cow yes. head, yes. Because he has a white mark on his head that looks like oh, a bull. I see. So Plutarch tells us that one day Philip bought a magnificent horse that was all black except for this white blaze on his head. Mm -hmm. And it cost enough money to make a normal person live for a hundred years. So, expensive <laughs> okay. horse. Ah, uh, man, the rich. But Philip tries to take this horse to his stables, and his grooms try to saddle him and everything. But none of them are able to calm this horse. This horse is really unruly, is really scared, seems to be skittish, kicking at people, biting. Hmm. It's not a fun time. But at this point, the eight-year-old Alexander is worried because he sees Philip saying, oh, take this horse away, we're not going to use him. Waste of money. But Alexander says, no, 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 they're just doing it all wrong. I know how to do this. They're losing such a great horse just because they don't have the skill or courage to manage him. And Philip asks, okay, you think you could do better? Yeah. And Alexander says, yes, I will. And if I don't manage to saddle this horse, you can take the money out of my account. Presumably he had one. Yeah. <laughs> Put it on my tab. Yeah. So Alexander goes up to Bucephalus, takes his bridle, and turns the horse's face towards the sun because he had noticed that Bucephalus was scared of his own shadow. Oh no, Bucephalus! And so if Bucephalus can't see his shadow, Alexander can just mount him easily and then takes him for a ride, going around at the awe of all the people assembled. Where Philip says, you'll have to find another kingdom, Alexander. Macedonia isn't big enough for you. Uh -huh. Macedonia isn't big enough for the two of us. <laughs> just... Well, you say that. That comes yeah. in later. <laughs> See? <laughs> Wait, how did Philip die? Gonna find out. Oh my god! <laughs> For shattering. Okay. Remember the obscure, maybe internal reasons from last time? Oh, true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, they wanted to blame it on Darius the Third. Right? Yep. Direct. They want to blame yeah, Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes yeah. 4. On the Empire. 
right? Yeah. Like, ah, yes, we, we totally did this, but it might have not. Okay, okay, I'm intrigued. Mm. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> so far, Alexander seemed a little bit jealous of, or just annoyed that to have to share the spotlight. So... Yeah, that is a characteristic of Alexander. What a narcissistic boy. Oh, definitely. It's only going to get worse. Oh, fun. <laughs> but also, one last thing about Bucephalus that I thought was fun is that Alexander was really attached to Bucephalus. He really loved this horse and really cared for him. And we get an anecdote from the East. Several years later, when Alexander is on campaign in the East, he was stationed in a village. And in this village, Bucephalus disappeared when Alexander was sleeping. Oh. Which point... Alexander went full Avatar The Last Airbender on them and said... Where is my bison? <laughs> yes. <laughs> he said, if I don't get my horse back by sundown, I will kill every man, woman, and child in this village. Make sure he gets back, okay? Um, um, okay. Hey, Alex, uh, could, you, could you... Let's just go... Listen, let's just have something to eat and drink and just, like, maybe, maybe take a nap. I'm sure he will turn up. I'm sure it'll just listen, buddy. It'll be fine, right? Yeah, it's fine. And lo and behold, after going into the Avatar state, only a few short hours later, Bucephalus shows up at his oh, camp. Isn't great. that nice? Hooray! What a nice coincidence. Presumably with a post-it note saying, we are so, so sorry. We didn't know it was your horse. Please forgive us. Oh my god. And nobody had to die in the end. Hooray! So there we go. And we also get a bit of a description of what Alexander looks like at this point. He's starting to grow into a man. He's becoming more an adult. And we're told that he is generally shorter than average, even for Macedonians. He is about 150 centimeters tall. Short is... king! Yes! <laughs> I feel yes. represented. So he is a great short king. It looks like a lot of the Macedonians are generally short and well-built from their portraits. Mm -hmm. It looks like if you punch them in the face, you would get hurt. It's it's really impressive. <laughs> they have the stout and strong kind of... Yes, very much. Yeah, we're told he's very muscular, compact of body, has blonde, messy hair that is described as lion's mane, and fair-skinned reddish complexion. I just... I want to cosplay him so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can see it. It works. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one day. All right, you can do, continue. Yeah, next all podcast Eve. Oh, yes. And also, you may have heard that Alexander had one grey-blue eye and another dark brown one. But unfortunately, I found out that this is from the Alexander Romance, which is basically a late Roman novel about Alexander. So oh, it's not It's the not fanfic. Real. It's the, yeah, they, they made him an anime boy. Like he, like he was supposed to be. Yes, he's an anime protagonist now. Yeah, exactly. All in all. So now Alexander is growing up and he needs to be taught how to run a kingdom. And... Philip is always very intent on Hellenizing them, so he wants to make sure that everybody sees them as proper Greeks. They're not barbarians, we're Greeks. So he calls up a talented young individual from the south called Aristotle of Stagira. Uh, yes, that Aristotle. Oh, that, that Aristotle. Oh yeah, no, that's true. Yes. I knew this. That he learned under Aristotle, right? Yeah. yeah. So Aristotle is his teacher. Excellent. Aristotle, whose teacher was Plato, whose teacher was Socrates. Yeah, so that Aristotle. good pedigree there. That guy. Wow. So Alexander is taken with a lot of the other young nobles because it's always good to educate the next king with the other young nobles so they get mm. to know each other and you know, network right, right. and all that. 
So he is brought over to a little remote village where he studies together with all these other nobles, among which there are names you may recognize, such as Ptolemy, Cassander, and Hephaestion. Hey, I know that guy, but I have Who my reasons. Who is Hephaestion? <laughs> Who was the boyfriend? Well, time for a massive tangent on being gay in ancient Greece. Ah, oh, fun. Let's get into it. Buckle up. So, first of all, caveat, a lot of the information that we have is from Athens. So, Macedon might have been a bit different because it was far away, they had different customs, but roughly it seems like this matched. So, pinch of salt, but this is roughly how it is. Because, in general, in the Greek world, homosexuality was treated differently to how we would. Hmm. Especially, generally, in what is acceptable. Because something we and them would both consider acceptable is two teenagers, two teenage boys, have a romance. That's cool and fine and okay. So we both yeah. agree. Great. Young love, they're experimenting. All is good. Lovely. Yeah, it's nice. Fun. But we would disagree in what happens once you reach adulthood. Yeah, it gets messy. Yes, because the Greeks think that if two adult men have a happy consenting relationship with each other, we think it's fine and normal and okay. Yeah. But the Greeks would think it's weird and uncomfortable because it's sort of seen as this childish thing in part. And also it's assumed that one of the two parties is being dishonored by the other. First of all, <laughs> like most of these kinds of phobias or hates, it's very much based on misogyny at the very root of it. But also it's such an odd way to see it. It's like the ultimate, oh, it's just a face, mom. Kind of, kind yeah. of thing is the ultimate, oh, it's just a phase, you'll grow out of it. Which, ridiculous, really. Yeah, to my understanding, they sort of see it as the equivalent for us as stumbling home drunk at 4am. Like, it's fine if a uni student does it, it's haha legend. But if the prime minister does it, then, oh no, <laughs> something is wrong. I see. Yeah, so things of the youth and things of like, ah, oh, yes, you're just experimenting and you're wild and young and just going about life. and Yeah, and it's also seen to have an educational role, which is where we would disagree with them because we don't find acceptable a relationship between an adult and a teenager or somebody in very different positions of power. Uh, no, that's... That's wrong. <laughs> very problematic. Just yes. No. But for the Greeks, that was cool and normal, which is what happened to Philip when he went to Thebes. He right. was the young lover to this older Theban general. Right. Oh. Oh, yeah. Okay. So that's sort of how the conception is of how this works. I have heard of this before, and it's usually, yeah, it's summarized as, as if it's between two young men, all is fine. If it's between one young man and one older man also kind of okay once you are grown up adult you should not do this because if you are the one receiving so to speak you have been dishonored and that's really bad for you and society will shun you yeah Which, exactly I, mm, yeah lots of you know, issues not great but hey well so this leads us to Hephaestion because there are three options for What's Hephaestion's deal? <laughs> oh, or four, if you want my secret me. angst version. <gasps> oh, of course I do. Are you kidding? <laughs> so option one is they were just good lifelong friends. It happens. They care for each other. They've grown up together. 
they were just good friends. Mm -hmm. Option two is when they were teens studying under Aristotle, they had a relationship at the time. But then as they grew up and it was no longer socially acceptable, they cut it off and went on with their lives, remaining good friends. Mm -hmm. Option three is they were lifelong lovers. They were boyfriends throughout their entire lives and mm -hmm. were keeping it secret when Alexander was an adult, or at least not public. And last is secret angst version, which is they always loved each other all their lives, but never meant to tell them because, oh no, what would the other person think? Oh no, oh, oh, it's terrible. And is then the, they died the unrequited. Without, yes, infinite oh, that is, yeah, that is the fanfic version. I am here so for the angst, go. but I doubt that's what happened. Yeah, so you can choose which of these versions is your favorite about mm -hmm. what do you think Hephaestion was to Alexander. Yeah, I mean, I guess we'll see. I have not done the research on it. I'm sure there's a lot. Once they're both dead, we can decide <laughs> in the next episode. We can pick apart their relationship and just speculate. Yes, exactly. Minute detail. Also, just an anecdote on what Alexander was into okay. is that he was, well, he was definitely into men, at least. Yes, we've established that. Yes, he kisses a man on the lips in front of the whole army at one point. We'll get okay. to it, but it's, it's a good scene. <laughs> Can't wait. It doesn't look like he's especially into women because as a youth, his parents are actually concerned because he hasn't had any relations with any woman. <laughs> Uh, and they actually hire a courtesan for him so he can get experience. <laughs> Son, you're lacking on this particular department. Come on. You said you would be the great. You have to be the great at all things. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And also later in his life, even when he has multiple wives, they're not okay. getting pregnant. There is a pregnancy, but in a very suspicious point, which makes it suspect that he wasn't trying. <laughs> Okay. So, we'll see. I mean, we'll, could, we'll get you could just say he's infertile, right? Like, he is the common... I mean, that could be, but at a very important narrative point, there's a pregnancy. Okay. Which makes it suspect that he was probably just not sleeping with his wives. Okay. Which, fair. Um, so, you know, fair enough. So, make up your mind about what Alexander was into. This is what we know. Interesting. So anyway, Alexander is in school, exchanging secret notes with Hephaestion, <laughs> when Aristotle is explaining the world. He's describing a lot of information. He's teaching them zoology, medicine, history, all the sort of things. And Alexander's actually quite into zoology and medicine, because on his expeditions, he would often send Aristotle back weird animals he found, saying, hey, look, I found this thing. Have a look. It's cool. And also, he was really into medicine, that he would prepare his own medicine to help his friends and himself when they were injured or sick. And he was reportedly quite good at it. So that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And also Aristotle told him something that is a little bit unpleasant, or at least from our side. Mm. Or rather, Aristotle taught him something that can be seen in two ways. Because he taught Alexander to be a leader to the Greeks and a despot to the barbarians. To look after the first ones like friends and relatives and to deal with the latter as beasts or plants. Uh, Aristotle, my dude, <laughs> my pal, my friend. So, I... if you want to be charitable to Aristotle, he is saying the Greeks are used to being ruled in a sort of democratic system, so treat them as equals because that's what they're used to, while in Asia they're used to a monarchy, so treat them as a monarch would. If you're being less charitable to Aristotle, which is usually the correct version, mm -hmm. he is basically saying that the Greeks are the only real men, the others are little better than savages and animals. So yeah, 
Let's Great. see what Alexander learns from this. Wow, Aristotle, that's a... I thought you were a smart guy, but I guess you're also a product of your time, so... I mean, he also has a lot of weird things to say about women that he could have solved yeah, just by forgot. talking true. to one woman oh, and fixing it, but yeah. Uh, Aristotle, touch grass, my friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot of things that he could have just figured out by looking. There's just so many things that are just like... Yep. Yeah, a lot of weird medicine and animal stuff. It's just like, just look at them and it's easy. But anyway. So as the years pass, Alexander grows and he becomes a man. So he grows in military experience and actually follows Philip along on campaign. And he is particularly excellent as a leader of cavalry. And in 340 BC, when he is about 16, he was born in uh, 356, he is left by Philip as regent of Macedon while Philip is off on campaign. Wow. And Alexander does a reasonably good job because Plutarch tells us that he defeated a revolting barbarian tribe mm-hmm. and founded a Greek city in their lands called Alexandrupolis. He still hasn't gotten the formula down, but he is, he's workshopping it. It's a good it. first attempt. Good first attempt. Yeah, it's fine. Alexander's city is... It's Alexandrupolis sort of works. I don't know. Yeah, it's the city of Alexander. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah kind of works. So this is his first experience, but he eventually becomes greater and greater helping Philip, and he follows him on his last mission into Greece. Because Philip has almost united all of Greece so he can attack the Achaemenid Empire. Hmm. There's just Athens and Thebes resisting. Right. So Philip goes and faces the Theban army led by the Sacred Band. Ah, oh, yes. Oh, my beloved. Yes, the one made of 150 pairs of lovers there together to fight the strongest force of its time. They fight together and Alexander's in charge of the cavalry at this point. And if you remember Hammer and Anvil, yeah, Alexander's in the hammer. <laughs> yeah, So True. while Philip keeps the phalanx there... Alexander wheels round with the cavalry and absolutely annihilates the sacred band, crushing Thebes' hope for independence. Mm-hmm. So at this point, Philip is now hegemon of Greece. He is the ruler of all. And uh, there we go. Everything seems set for Philip's invasion of Asia. And mm. he has a proud young heir called Alexander to succeed him in case anything were to happen. Everything sounds great. Yes. Problem is... Philip and Olympias begin arguing. Olympias is unhappy for some reason, and Philip accuses her of adultery, and he repudiates her. He divorces her, and he marries another woman, while at the same time casting doubt on Alexander's paternity. Because, well, if your mother was an adulterer, who knows about you? Also, you're only (laughs) half Macedonian, so what are you talking about? And it's a bit unclear why Philip is doing this. One of the possibilities is that he suspected that Alexander would try and overthrow him while he was off in Asia. So Alexander would try and take over Macedon and leave Philip stranded in Asia Minor. Possibly because, you know, Olympias had always raised Alexander to see himself as king and to take the glory and to fear not having enough to do. And so, well, this is the chance to take the glory for himself and away from Philip. So maybe Philip is a bit concerned about that. And also, he was arguing with Alexander about who had won the battle against the Thebans. Mm-hmm. Because Philip was in charge, so he thinks, well, I should be the one who gets the credit. I commanded the battle. What are you saying? Well, Alexander says, yeah, sure, you were commanding the battle, 
but I was in there with the cavalry actually fighting and winning it for you. So I should deserve the credit. I see. So there's a bit of a mess there, and there's a disagreement. Very healthy, everything. Yeah. This leads to a wonderful scene at Philip's new wedding. Because Philip is marrying a Macedonian noblewoman. Hmm. And, well, that's going to give rise to some heirs that are full Macedonian, unlike Alexander, who's only half. Oof. Because at the wedding feast, we have a great scene from Plutarch. Again, because we're told that after much wine was drunk, uh-huh. Philip's basically new father-in-law, a general called Attalus, made a toast to the new union. He said, may this wonderful union and marriage produce a legitimate successor to the kingdom. At this point, Alexander took his cup and threw it at Attalus's face, shouting, yep. and what am I? Am I a bastard? <laughs> oh, boy. At which point Philip is angry and drunk and drew his sword and went to strike at Alexander to stab him. But he tripped over one of the couches that were there in the feast hall and fell to the ground on the floor. Oh my god, seriously. At which point Alexander says, oh, so this is the man who's been preparing to cross from Europe into Asia and he can't even cross from one couch to the next. Oh my god, he's really going there. Alexander's really <laughs> riled up right yes. now. Oh my god. This man. Yes, at which point Alexander took Olympias and ran away to his grandparents in Epirus in case Philip eventually wanted to murder him. But, you know, yeah, because the king. Because, yeah. Um, oopsie. So, not great. <laughs> Things are problematic. And then when we get a scene where everybody is really drunk... Also, make note of this, Macedonians like their wine. It'll come in the story later on. But after spirits have cooled a little bit, Philip realizes, okay, if he is going to go into Asia, he needs an heir because it would be really dumb to head for a vast expedition into the East that will change history and then not have an heir to hold it all together. I mean, that would just Mm -hmm. make all of your work pointless. So let's not do that. And also his new wife only gave him a daughter, so he doesn't really have an heir outside of Alexander. So he writes a letter to Alexander, says, listen, we all said some things we regret. (laughs) (laughs) Come home. You're still my heir. Maybe leave Olympias in Epirus. I'd I'd rather not see her. And Alexander, okay, he returns. Fine. He decides, all right, he's somehow convinced by Philip's words. They make up. And Alexander is Philip's heir once more. So we arrive to the spring of 336, when Philip sends a first expedition into Asia under Parmenion, the advanced expedition. He sends Parmenion and Attalus, the one who had implicitly called Alexander a bastard, to go off to Asia. And they have some initial successes, as we saw. Some of the Greek cities join the League, and they start besieging some important lands, while... The Achaemenid forces are sort of keeping an eye out, making sure that nothing crazy is happening. But at this point, one of the satraps of Anatolia sends a message to Philip and asks, Hey, listen, can I marry my daughter to your son Aridaeus, who is Alexander's Mm half-brother? This will strengthen our alliance and it'll help you cross into Asia. How does that sound? But Alexander intercepts this message and seeing this message, he thinks, oh no, my father wants to replace me with Aridaeus, because, well, otherwise you wouldn't have him for an important political marriage, right? 
Oh god. Oh no. What's happening? So Alexander goes over his father's head and writes to the satrap saying, No, 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 Aridaeus is busy, but I, Alexander, would be happy to marry your daughter. And, mm-hmm. well, of course, being Philip's son and heir, I should definitely have this place, shouldn't I? Okay. And so there's a bit of a back and forth, and then Philip finds out when he hasn't received an answer from the satrap, and he is furious at Alexander because well, yeah, about you're not all of king this, like, yet. scheming behind his back, I just, oh my god. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you're not king yet. What are you doing? I, I was going to marry Aridaeus off because he's not my heir. I was going to save you for a princess of some sort, not the daughter of a satrap. But what you are you doing, you fool? Let go. Just not everything is about you, Alexander. <laughs> exactly. So Philip takes a lot of Alexander's close friends, including Ptolemy. Yes, mm-hmm. that Ptolemy and oh. Nearchus. And he exiles them and he says... Okay. Oh, no. You're, stay away from Alexander. Don't give him any bad advice. Stop Shut being up. a bad influence on my precious child. Yes. Who's done nothing wrong ever. <laughs> yes. So Philip then makes plans for new plans for the succession because Alexander is deeply unstable. And he marries off his nephew to his daughter, trying to strengthen the family that way. And his new wife is pregnant again. So he, fingers crossed, it's going to be a boy. Mm-hmm. And at this point, he also wants to strengthen alliances with Epirus, where Olympias is, before leaving for Asia. He wants to have his back covered. And yes, he was allied with Epirus through Olympias, but now that they're divorced, he needs something else. Mm. So he's decided that he is going to marry his own daughter to I... Olympias's brother, the king of Epirus. Uh, uh, um, okay. <laughs> it's, uh. Yes, it's very twisty-turny. Eh. It's not the worst we've seen. <laughs> it's going to get worse, so don't worry. Oh, fun. Yeah, great. Excellent. <laughs> so they managed to organize a wonderful wedding celebration, which also serves as a send-off, because Philip is going to head to Asia and lead his expedition. Hmm. So in comes all the court of Epirus, together with his ex-wife, Olympias. And Alexander's there, all together, at the celebration. And great news! Philip's new wife has given birth to a healthy baby boy. Oh, okay. Finally, there's an alternative to Alexander. Oh, no. And a full Macedonian boy, no less. Oh, isn't this great news, Philip? Mm-hmm. How long so does the wedding this boy celebration last? starts. <laughs> well, <laughs> interesting that you would say that. I, I know my tropes by now. <laughs> Because there's a great wedding celebration, and the first day has plays and oaths of loyalty from all the guests to Philip. Of course, he's of course. on his expedition. And the second day, there's a wonderful parade which Philip leads, and he appears just after the images of the gods. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Mm-hmm. And his bodyguards are a bit far behind because it wouldn't help with the optics having all these guards. It sort of obstructs no, the view. Wait, it's kind of know. a pain. Who cares about safety? Just. Yeah, it's all right. The aesthetics are more important. Yeah, of course. Which point one of his bodyguards runs up to Philip, stabs him through the <gasps> chest, then tries to run away. He has a getaway horse. He has an accomplice. But the royal guards find the murderer, stab him to death before he uh, can be questioned. Uh, oof. I, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it was one of the bodyguards, though, who did it. It was one of the bodyguards. Damn. Yes. So... What happened? Why did Philip get killed? So first of all, we need to look at who the murderer was. 
Oh, and I see. content warning for sexual assault. I'm sorry, it's a necessary I... part of the story. Uh, okay. Because the murderer was a young man called Pausanias, who was one of the young lovers of Philip. Mm-hmm. But he had grown up, and Philip had taken another new lover. Yeah. But Pausanias was still jealous. Pausanias still had feelings for Philip, mm-hmm. and uh, he got angry and attacked the new boy that Philip had taken as his lover. Right. But, as fate would have it, this new lover was a friend of Attalus, the guy who called Alexander a bastard. Oh, that guy. This okay. important general. So, in revenge, this general proceeded to get Pausanias drunk and rape him as oh, punishment. No. Oh, no. So, Pausanias then goes to Philip, full of anger, yeah. and asks him to punish his general. He says, this Look, terrible thing to happened yeah. to me. Look what they did to me. Punish him. But Philip is now related to Attalus by marriage. Uh, and is an important general. So Philip brushes it away and treats oh Pausanias as a joke. So this is who the murderer is. So I, I, yeah, no, It's I, fair enough. What? Yeah. Good on you. Honestly, yeah. So one theory is that Pausanias was just acting alone. He was just taking revenge for himself. Nobody Which, was helping him. Knowing this story, it would make sense. Yeah, it's understandable. Uh, jealous ex-lover and traumatized sexual assault survivor. It's like it's very it feels very unfair. Also, feelings are just very intense. Like it. Yeah, exactly. And, it makes sense. You know, he, he has a motive. Yeah, he has a clear motive. Well, the other options are instead that yes, he had a motive, but somebody else gave him the means, because. Well, Alexander himself claims that Pausanias was paid by the wicked Persians. How dare they kill my father? I will get revenge for them. And, you know, honestly, fair enough. Philip was about to invade Asia. It makes sense that the king of kings would just use a bit of extra cash to pay a disgruntled member of the court to kill Philip. And problem solved. They didn't know Alexander the Great was Alexander the Great. They thought he was some kid. So if it was any other heir to the throne, then it probably would have worked. So that's another option. The third option is instead looking at who gained most from this. So Olympias and Alexander. Hmm. So Olympias herself looked extraordinarily guilty because she had Pausanias buried with honor and dedicated the sword used to kill Philip to Apollo. Wow. Wow. (laughs) That's... Yes. Yeah. It's pretty on the nose. Yeah. There's also mention that she prepared the horses for Pausanias to get away. And also that the ones who killed Pausanias were Alexander's friends, a man called Perdiccas amongst them. So, sure, they could have killed him in the heat of the moment, but also it's definitely be more valuable, kept alive for questioning. But, well, now he can't say who paid him, or at least who pushed him to it. Now, the matter here is, did Alexander know? Right. Because in the typical character arc that we have, we're still in the Alexander is great and wonderful and our beautiful golden boy. But also, we've seen that he is not doing well with Philip. He is threatened in his place in the succession. A brand new heir was born. Yeah. Personally, I think Alexander and Olympias planned it together. Uh, It would make perfect sense. At least it would make sense that Alexander would be looking for a way to once his succession is secured, right? Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, also it's very clean for Alexander, and Alexander does this a lot. It's unclear if Alexander does this or the historians do this, but anyway. Right. Whenever something terrible is done by Alexander, or that benefits Alexander, it's Olympias' fault. It's the oh, evil foreign okay. queen yes. that did it's everything bad. the evil bad. woman who plans all yes. of this. But yeah, we've seen this multiple times in history. It also happens a bunch in the Roman Empire. I remember in the Julians. Agrippina? Yes, Agrippina. Yeah, there's very much of an Agrippina vibe going mm -hmm. on here because ah, she's the evil mother that did everything wrong. And oh no, poor Alexander. Well, of course he benefited from everything, but he didn't know the poor boy. He I, was our golden yeah, child. That is ridiculous, by the way. And also there is a case in a few episodes down the line, but it's generally works well for kings to have a good cop, bad cop routine where Alexander is kind and merciful and helpful, but... Oh, you know, his mother's a loose cannon. It would be a shame if Olympias got to you first. Better not rebel. <laughs> so there's a lot of that going on. There are these several options, and personally, I think the Olympias plus Alexander murder is very likely. Make up your own minds on what you think is the most realistic version, but hey. But anyway, the king is dead. Long live the king. Alexander's now king of Macedon. So now the situation is a little bit dangerous for Alexander because after the death of Philip, he can't just succeed as if nothing had happened. He has to rebuild the power base that Philip had because now everybody sees, oh, it's just this 20-year-old kid now in, in charge of Macedon. The great war leader Philip is gone. This is the perfect time to rebel. So Alexander first got in touch with Parmenion, the leader of the Asian expedition. And he said, okay, listen. I'm going to give your family some very important positions in court. You can have some lands, power, name it, as long as you support me for the throne. Hmm. Also, Attalus, the guy who questioned my legitimacy and is the blood relation of the new baby that was born, uh -huh. kill him. Yeah. And Parmenion looks at the list of offers and says, you know what? Yes, I accept this. Attalus is executed. And Parmenion sends his support to Alexander. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, he is shortly after briefly defeated by Memnon of Rhodes under the commands of Bagoas. Oh, right, yes. That's what I happened in that. the meantime. Sorry, we have so much drama going on now, like political intrigue, that I forgot about all the things <laughs> that were going on. Yes, about the wider world. Yeah. But yeah, so now after having secured Parmenion's support and the main Macedonian army that Philip had built for decades and trained bit by bit and is now a terrifying killing machine. So at this point, Alexander is then elected as leader of the League of Corinth. So he is nominally the leader of the Greek city-states and is now the new leader of the expedition against Persia. Cool. Hmm. And we're told that Alexander has some housekeeping to do before he leaves. First of all, he wants a good omen. So he goes to the Oracle of Delphi. Oh, fun. But they're closed. <laughs> there is a religious holiday, so the Pythia isn't really taking any visitors. Sorry, Alexander, could you come back another time? But Alexander is not the kind of person who comes back another time. Alexander goes up to the priestess, bangs loudly on her door, and basically takes her by the clothes and begins dragging her towards the temple so he can get his omen. And then this poor old lady, this priestess then tells Alexander, My son, you're invincible. What are you doing? 
presumably with the meaning of you won't take no for an answer, please leave me alone, I'm on holiday. But Alexander took the my son you're invincible as aha, this means I'm never going to be defeated. I got the omen I came for. Tra-la-la-la-la, thank you. Oh, no. Thank you, yes, Priestess, bye. Yes, because the of Delphi is known for being very straightforward with their answers. <laughs> yes, especially if you're dragging her through the street yeah. to get to the temple. So, there we go. That's solved. We have an omen. Awesome. Mm-hmm. I don't think this is how omens work, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, Alexander then went to secure his borders, suppressing revolts among the northern barbarians, making sure everything was safe and in order. And he wins several victories, but the news is lost in Greece. And in Greece, there's a rumor that actually Alexander died fighting the Northern Barbarians. If you want to rebel, it's cool now. Oh. And so the Thebans kill all their pro-Macedonian politicians and decide, okay, it's our time to get it back. Let's fight. Oh, hell. The Athenians spread the rumor that Alexander is dead. They command a great coalition to go fight the Macedonians, finally free Greece from them again. Oh, no. In the meantime, money is coming into Greece from the Achaemenid Empire, saying, yes, yes, fight. Right, good, yeah. Good. <laughs> we were just on the sidelines, just eating popcorn, being like, yes, my minions, do your thing. And so it's at this point that Olympias gets a message. She reads the message and says, okay, cool. And suddenly... Alexander's cousin, who was the next in line for the throne, mm-hmm. Philip's year-old son, yes. Philip's two-year-old daughter, Philip's new wife, mm-hmm. all are killed brutally by Olympias. Oh my god. I was about to ask, like, did the baby actually... Because it was very strange to me that Philip was killed before the heir was killed. Because that could be a problem, right? Like, if you still have the heir and he has been put as the main successor for the throne, then you still Mm -hmm. have to deal with that. But yeah, I guess we did did deal with that. Um, Yeah. uh Uh-huh. Also, according to the rumors which fit Olympias' witch queen persona... She roasted the baby over a fire herself. Oh, shut up. Because why not? What is this? The War of Troy? Come on. Now you say that. (laughs) You're getting close to that. And oh, also, Olympias doesn't just kill Philip's other young wife. She just forces her to hang herself. She sends her a rope with a message saying, I'll do worse things. Uh, So, (laughs) I mean, Olympias isn't depicted as being very nice and i can believe she is on the level with parasatis i was going to say i need her to meet parasatis and i don't know (laughs) if any of this is actually like true or it's just how people paint her because that's been done before but just because she has that fame like they deserve to meet and just yeah you know have a tea party eat some snacks together yeah 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 (laughs) yeah exactly So yeah, now that all the murders are safe, Alexander has no rival for the throne. Nobody to succeed him. No enemies. So he marches south to Thebes. The city resists for a while, but Alexander suddenly breaks through and massacres the entire population of the city, raises it to the ground, and makes sure that Thebes will no longer be populated. Thebes no longer exists. Wow. Bye. Wow. Just, you know, just wipe the whole thing off the map. Yep. Because one revolt is fine, two revolts, I will destroy you and everything you love. I miss Cyrus and his mercy (laughs) and his kindness. You wouldn't believe that Alexander grew up reading the Cyropedia, did you? Yeah, especially since the Cyropedia, like, regardless of how Cyrus actually was, 
the Serapedia remarks on this kind of like mercy and kindness that he had, right? Like it, it exaltates yeah, what a exactly. good ruler he was because he didn't actually have to massacre people, but he just, <laughs> well, yeah, nope. to each their own, I guess. Yeah, Alexander's from a darker, deeper place. He has decided to not do that. But hey, now that everyone is dead, we can head to Asia. Hooray! And so Alexander begins heading off towards Asia when he receives an omen. Because a statue of Orpheus in Macedonia begins sweating incessantly. Oh. So... Statues don't do that? Yes, he thinks. This doesn't usually happen. Is this a new statue Aristotle built? I don't know. And he talks to his seers, and the seers say, Oh, great news, my king. It's actually a great sign, because this is an omen that all the epic and lyric poets will have so much work to do after your great expedition. They'll have to sweat buckets. (laughs) I just, I imagine this person dressed as a statue, you know, in like white paint, (laughs) clay, just being like, Oh my god, 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 oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, pretty much. That is the official version of what happened. <laughs> Just totally don't notice that I am. I am absolutely a statue. I'm really good at my job. Please don't hurt me. Please don't hurt me. Please don't hurt me. Yeah, I, I, I think I heard that woman legs. roasted a baby. <laughs> please don't hurt me. Don't mind my knees buckling. Please, it's fine. I just, I, just, I'm a very good statue. Yes. So Alexander is heading off into Asia. But before that, some housekeeping. Parmenion tells Alexander... Listen, maybe you should get married and have a child before leaving, because otherwise, you know, Philip didn't want to leave without having an heir. If you die on the expedition, everything is gone. The dynasty is almost finished, so... You took care of that. Maybe you should marry, yeah. You You have no rivals, but you have no heirs, so... Nobody else was left, Maybe you should get married? Is that okay? But Alexander decides, nah, screw that, I'm heading off to Asia. And yeah, this could be a few reasons. Either it was that, well, Alexander was never really very interested in women or marriage, so he didn't really care. He wanted to kill something. Or it could have just been that he didn't want to alienate any of his nobles by marrying one of their daughters versus someone else's. So he decided this is the best way to remain impartial. Whichever it was, Alexander is single and ready to mingle. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure he'll have many offers oh yes he will his dms were clogged up (laughs) Um. so he heads off into asia but uh the problem is that he doesn't have much money oh surprise he has like about six months worth of pay for the army and then he has to turn back so this might have also been an influence in the not waiting for an heir bit but anyway in 334 his army of about fifty thousand men disembarks in asia minor And they basically take the opposite of the path that Xerxes took invading Greece. And Alexander brings with him a ton of different people. He brings architects, mathematicians, geographers, botanists, zoologists, astronomers, and artists to document his expedition to ensure that everything they find in the East, all the great things he's going to do, are properly recorded. Everybody remembers. And also he appoints Aristotle's nephew, Callisthenes, as the official historian of the expedition. And actually, this is just a brief tangent on the sources we have, because pretty much all the sources we have are the original diaries from the day that was there, because Alexander's secretary, Eumenes of Cardia, basically wrote every day what had happened in a diary. 
and then Callisthenes' job was to compile this into a narrative of the story. And so most of our sources draw from these, mainly Callisthenes, because the day-by-day -day stuff wasn't really riveting and it was lost earlier. And also from the stories of different generals that were there, among which is Ptolemy, the guy who ends up ruling Egypt. Ptolemy wrote a memoir that unfortunately we don't have anymore, but he described his experience with Alexander. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so we have some later sources. Our main one is Arian who is, again, living during the Roman Empire, but he's collecting everything. He's the most precise one that we have, and he's very cool. Yeah, so you mentioned the Trojan War, and, well, Alexander isn't going to let a little invasion stop his sightseeing, so he heads over to the site of Troy. He heads over to the ruins of Troy, and there he goes to give his respects to his ancestor Achilles, because the locals point him to a tomb and say, Yes, Alexander, that is the tomb of Achilles. And that mm -hmm. one next to him, that is the tomb of Patroclus, his lover. Yay. And Achilles... And Achilles. <laughs> and so, Alexander yes. takes Hephaestion and says, Hey, listen, let's lay some wreaths. Me on the tomb of Achilles, you on the tomb of Patroclus. And then we can have a running race around them in their honor. And then we can cosplay as them and just, you know... Pretty much, yes. I feel this. <laughs> exactly. Alexander is big into cosplay. Hmm. Uh, yeah, so there's this nice ceremony around Troy. And then Alexander just finds out that, oh no, we're seriously running out of money. We need a battle against these people. <laughs> Let's do something. And in the meantime, if you'll remember, as we said last time, Memnon of Rhodes is proposing scorched earth. Alexander's going to run out of money soon. Yep. Let's just, just leave don't, him to finish. Exactly, yeah. Don't battle. Don't spend any of our money and our men's lives in this. Yeah, Things exactly. will happen because, you know. Yeah, but the satraps think that this is a cowardly way to go. It's not going to look good on them. They're going to have their own satrapies being raided, being attacked by the Macedonians. So they want a quick victory. So they give Alexander what he wanted because they all join together and get ready to give battle. Yeah. And so in May, Alexander arrives to the river Granicus where he finds the Achaemenid army arrayed, ready to fight him. Mm-hmm. So initially, Alexander's army has a bit of trouble crossing the river, getting through to the Achaemenids, because they're shooting at them with arrows, yeah. making sure that it's difficult to cross. It's a river. Yeah, do you know, do you want, like, it's excellent that if you're going to battle somebody, they still first have to battle nature, so that gives you a bit of an advantage. Yeah, exactly. But Alexander manages to take advantage of the situation, and under the cover of darkness, he manages to cross across the river and attack the Achaemenid forces. And so they take to battle. The fighting is extremely fierce, and Alexander was almost killed twice. <laughs> because Arian tells us that Alexander was targeted by the Persians for his brilliant armor as king. He was the most magnificent-looking one of them. And so we're told that one Persian first struck him on the head with his sword, Ooh. but the helmet absorbed all the impact. Good Alexander helmet. had a beautiful lion helmet following oh, of Heracles. Right. Because, yeah. So the helmet absorbed the blow. So Alexander takes this Persian man, throws him to the ground, and stabs him through the chest. So he uh, dies. Oof, okay, yeah, intense. But then just behind Alexander is another Persian going down to chop Alexander's head off. But one of Alexander's lieutenants, a man called Clytus the Black, and you'll want to remember him for later, cuts off this Persian man's arm and save Alexander's life. So there we go. But after the long, hard fighting... The Achaemenid army is broken. Alexander has all of Anatolia free of any enemy armies. He can do what he wants. Excellent. 
Also, he erects a monument to his victory on this place. As you do. With what money? Generally, they erect monuments with the weapons of the fallen. Okay, they sort of okay. like make a pile out of them. So yeah, it's a bit of a right shrine that makes of some sense. sort. That but kind yeah. of monument. It's just a quick battlefield just thing. Re- recycling. Good, good. Yeah, exactly. And if you remember from last time, the Spartans were being paid by the Achaemenids to um, disregard the Macedonians, not join the expedition, and try and make trouble at home. Yeah. So they had to join Alexander on the expedition. And Alexander writes the most beautifully petty inscription on this monument, saying, Alexander, son of Philip, and the Greeks, except the Spartans, took these spoils for the barbarians who live in Asia. <laughs> the Spartans who wear a bunch of lacy weaklings <laughs> the Spartans who sold who out. weren't there. <laughs> who missed the whole party. Boo-hoo. <laughs> yes, pretty much. So... Going well. How do we know? Do we have this? Like, I assume this didn't last, so. No, I think it's Arian who tells us about it. I see, I see. Who basically, on the memory of the people who were on the expedition, who say, okay, this is Mm. what happened. They did bring a historian with them, like, purposefully. Yeah, I mean, they brought several historians and botanists and all. (laughs) They brought every kind of person who could write something down, so they made sure nobody would forget. Yeah, so now Alexander has free reign of Anatolia, and he goes around the different Greek cities and adds them one by one to his new Hellenic League. And he also takes several satrapies, and he replaces the Persian satraps with his own Macedonian ones. Although certain areas, if you remember the semi-independent satraps that had rebelled against Artaxerxes II, those just sort of fade away into the background, (laughs) trying not to look anybody in the eye. And they just become independent without anybody noticing. Because, you know, understandable. So Alexander's slowly adding satrapies now to his kingdom. And it seems that generally he was pretty keen on allowing the locals their own regular customs and only really replace the governors. So that's interesting. And the main blemish in this campaign is the taking of the city of Halicarnassus, which is the home of Herodotus, Oh, by the way. Apparently, Memnon of Rhodes was defending the city, and uh, they managed to defend well against Alexander several times. But then, after losing too many men, Memnon of Rhodes evacuated, left. But he set fire to the armories in the city to make sure that Alexander wouldn't get much advantage of it. Uh, But then when the Macedonians entered, the fire spread and basically burnt down half the city. So that wasn't a great advantage overall. So at this point, Alexander decided to head further east to face Darius because he heard Darius was amassing an army to fight him for real this time. 1v1 me, oh you boy. scrub. It's happening. Yes. In the meantime, Memnon goes off, tries to counter-invade, but dies. Oh, uh, yeah. Sad. So that could have been cool, but no. Also, the Spartans are late, so it doesn't That's work out. per usual. And it is in this context that we get Alexander passes through a city called Gordium, where we have the episode that you may have heard of, of the Gordian Knot. Oh, that's interesting. I know what a Gordian Knot is. So essentially in Gordium, there was an ancient wagon that had been dedicated to Zeus and had been uh, tied in a temple with a very special knot. And there was a prophecy that anyone who could undo the knot would become lord of all Asia. Mm. So, of course, Alexander's passing through. Is he not going to try? He has to. No, of course. There's an Excalibur kind of quest right there. He has to. Yeah, exactly. He has to do it. 
So he tries, he looks around, but he can't find where the rope begins because this knot is just so elaborate. He can't find a place to start. Gets angry, gets frustrated, Does takes out his sword, I knew and it. cuts through the knot. <laughs> the barbarian slash fighter way to do it. Just. Yeah. He cuts through the knot, shouting, What difference does it make how I loosen it? It wasn't written in the prophecy. I still get it. I, I mean, that is fair. It's very old brand. prophecies are weird, so yeah, there we go. And apparently the next night, there is thunder and lightning indicating Zeus's favor, so of course, Alexander is going to win. Hurrah, hurrah. Mm, Sure. And it is at this point that we meet our old friend Darius III, because in November of 333, the two meet, they come face to face at a place called Issus. Where, if you remember, actually, Alexander was sort of outmaneuvered by Darius. He had to abandon the injured men that he had to the Achaemenids. So the two face each other in battle. Darius is told not to delay. It's better to take Alexander when he is unprepared. Let's go. Mm -hmm. So Alexander fights personally, comes into battle, leads the cavalry as he is used to, of course. And he comes into direct confrontation with Darius. He fights his bodyguards. There's fierce fighting in front of Darius's chariot. And Alexander was wounded in the thigh. Some say by Darius himself even. But Alexander keeps going. He's a machine. He keeps mm. fighting. And at this point, Darius sees that he's in danger of being surrounded and captured. So, as we saw last time, he flees. Darius heads off towards the east with his chariot. Alexander tries to run after him, tries to capture Darius. but He receives news that, well, it looks like the left flank is at risk of collapsing, so Mm -hmm. swallows this ambition, wheels round, and wins the battle for real. So that goes well. There we go. Alexander has defeated the great army of the Achaemenid King of Kings. Things are dangerous. We manages to not only capture the royal insignia of Darius, but also his family. He has all his wives, concubines, and children, including his six-year-old son, Ocus. Oh, Ocus. Who is never heard from again. Ah. Now, he isn't explicitly killed by Alexander, but, you know. But. He was a bit too old to die of natural causes. A bit too old slash young to die of natural causes. Yep, yep, yep. We know, we know, we know what happened. <laughs> he tripped and fell onto a pile of swords and, well, you know, things happen. Who left those swords there? Oh no, oh god. Yeah. But we are told by the sources that Alexander treated all the royal family very well. He supposedly took Ocus as his own personal ward. He's going to educate him very carefully. Don't worry, kids. And Alexander was good enough that he told all the women in Darius' harem that Mm. they would not be harmed. He calmed them down, saying, no, 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 don't worry. I just defeated Darius. He's still alive. You're son slash husband slash father is still okay. Don't worry, I'm just the conqueror here. Mm. Oh, okay then. But we get a fun scene here when Alexander and Hephaestion first enter the harem because Darius's mother arrives and Hephaestion was a little bit taller than Alexander. So Darius's mother throws herself at the feet of Hephaestion and says, Oh, great King Alexander, please spare us. Have mercy upon us, for we are royals as well. Mm-hmm. Please make sure we're treated well. The Macedonians start giggling. Somebody whispers into the ear of the Queen Mother. Actually, that's not Alexander. Alexander's the one next to him. He's the short guy. Hmm. 
The queen is very embarrassed and just stutteringly apologizes to mm-hmm. Alexander. And Alexander says, no, 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 don't worry, mother. You didn't make a mistake. He's also Alexander. Oh. Because, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> Feistion. Right. Also because Aristotle, when they were kids, described them as one soul and two bodies. So, <laughs> you know, they're close. And they kind of look similar. So that is very sweet, actually. Nice. I am a fan. I ship them very intensely. Yeah, they're good together. Although, you know, we'll see what happens. But still, uh, mm. Just let me and... have this, okay? <laughs> it's okay. I don't really? like Alexander that much. He is a yeah. spoiled brat. But I will take this. And he also, now that he's a spoiled brat, he gets his first taste of luxury because, well, he captures the treasure that Darius had brought with himself to pay his army. And Plutarch tells us that in the evening, Alexander said to a friend, come on, uh, let's see what Darius's bath is like. I'm looking forward to a nice bath after battle. And the friend replied, no, 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 Alexander, that's not Darius's bath. That's your bath now. And Alexander exclaimed, seeing all the luxury, ah, so finally, this is what it's like to be a king. Oh, so there. And it's at this point that we get Darius's first peace offer. Darius offers all the lands west of the Halys River to Alexander and his family back, please. Alexander, come on. He's not going to accept terms. He sends a letter back to Darius and says, In future, you will address me as king of all Asia. Don't write to me as an equal because I'm your superior. Wherever you may hide yourself, be sure I will find you. Ooh. Ooh. So things are cool and fine and okay. Yeah, everything's okay. Everything's hunky-dory. Yeah, that's all right. Don't worry. It's fine. It's all good. So now Alexander has a choice of where to go. He could ride east and take Darius before he has a chance to reorganize. Or he could remove the Mediterranean from the Achaemenid Empire to ensure that, well, they can't counter-invade anymore, try as they might. Hmm. And so Alexander knows that his situation is precarious, so he decides Mediterranean it is. Also, Egypt is on the way. They've been rebelling a lot. Yeah, It'll probably be do. easy to take. So, you know, fine. Let's go there. Oof. So he heads south. He goes down through Phoenicia, the home of Carthage and all that. Mm-hmm. And marching south, a lot of the cities surrender. The cities of Byblos, Arados, and Sidon surrender without a fight, and they just... Tell Alexander, hey, can we just keep the same arrangement we had with the Achaemenids? Alexander says, yeah, sure, that's fine. And these cities surrender. Hmm. But there is one city that does not surrender, and that is the city of Tyre, which was one of the great old cities and the mother city of Carthage, the one from which the first colonists to Carthage had gone. And actually, around this time, there are some ambassadors from Carthage there for a religious festival, and they see all this happen. Because Tyre decides they're not going to surrender. And so Alexander decides, fine, I'm going to kill them all. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that it's very difficult to take Tyre because it is on a little island separate from all the land. Because there is a new city built on this island with a citadel well defended and another one on the coast, which is old Tyre. But, you know, you don't have to defend that. You can just look at it from afar and dissuade Alexander from coming to you. So what do you think Alexander does faced with an island city? He decides it would look much better if it weren't an island. Oh, okay. I I guess that's an option. (laughs) Um, He decided it was. 
I, I, um... So, first of all, he destroys the old city of Tyre and dumps all the rubble into the sea in front of the island of Tyre. And then slowly builds up a land connection to try and get towards the Tyrians. Now, the Tyrians at first laugh at this. They say, ha, look at this kid. He thinks he can just bridge the sea. Yeah. And with each passing month, they laugh less and less (laughs) as they see the bridge forming, a peninsula extending towards the island. And Alexander has specific floating siege engines built he has soldiers on the front ready to attack the defenders of Tyre. Oh boy. And their defense becomes more and more desperate as the Macedonians finally arrive and connect the island to the mainland. And it is still connected to this day. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I, uh, so we can just check what the connection was made out of, I guess, and just see how... Pretty much. I, uh, I mean, it's been 2,000 years, so it's changed, but if but you dig, you find I, it. Oh my god. <laughs> I, <laughs> I yeah. need a moment. Um, wow. Yeah. So, in July of 332, Alexander orders a final full assault. He has floating battering rams, floating siege towers, an army ready to go through the area, and he manages to scale the walls and crush the city of Tyre. Well. Wow. After waiting six months, Alexander's not a happy bunny. Surprise. Alexander decides to massacre the entire city. Nobody will be left alive, except those few people who were sheltering in the temple of Heracles, including the Carthaginian ambassadors. Those people are spared. Everyone else is brutally murdered without any regard. The massacre is so total that the city of Sidon, Tyre's traditional rival, sends some rescue ships to Tyre to try and get people out of there as fast as possible before Alexander has finished them all. Oh my god. I... Uh, I don't know what to say. Listen, uh... Yeah. <laughs> who is still in favor of Alexander being a precious little golden boy? Like, I... Uh, yeah, this still isn't the part where he is being corrupted by the East, quote-unquote. Yeah, no, He's this still is just, the golden boy. I mean, boy. you don't get to get the nickname The Great and conquer most of the known world by being a nice person. I feel like we forget because we idolize these historical figures, but, like, not fun. Alexander does not care much for the life of civilians if they stand (sighs) in his way. Damn. But good news for Alexander is that every other city in Palestine, when he's heading towards Egypt, surrenders immediately... I being wonder terrified why. of what happened. God. There is one city that doesn't surrender. It's the way into Egypt. It's Gaza. Hmm. The Achaemenid governor of Gaza holds off the Macedonians, keeps them away for a few months. And Alexander's actually seriously wounded a few times because he has an arrow strike him in the shoulder and probably sever an artery, which required some serious patching up to do. Oof. Also, a catapult stone broke his leg. Apparently there was an omen of this before because a bird flew over him and dropped a rock on his head. So make of that what you will. Okay. But you have to remember that Alexander's into cosplay. And when he captures Gaza and destroys it, kills all the defenders, he finds the governor that dared to defy him and pierces the back of his feet and ties them to the back of his chariot. Just like Achilles does with Hector. Isn't that fun? 
No. And Alexander rides a ring around the city, carrying this poor man around, riding him to death. So, isn't, isn't it cute? You know, he, he slept with the Iliad under his pillow. That's fine and okay, right? Sorry, I do not have many words <laughs> right now. I'm just... Yeah. It's, uh... yeah, it's a lot. But after Gaza, Alexander enters Egypt and, well, Egypt surrenders immediately. Egypt didn't like the Achaemenids very much anyway, and, well, Alexander has been doing well. They don't want to die. Mm-hmm. So in Memphis... Alexander is triumphantly welcomed, and on the 14th of November, 332, he is officially anointed as Pharaoh and God. Because, Isn't that you know, nice? Alexander the Great wasn't good enough. Alexander the God is where he wants to go. He also decides that, well, since Tyre was an important trading city, and it doesn't exist anymore, we should probably replace it. So he goes to the delta of, of the Nile and founds a new city. Alexandrupolis doesn't sound as good anymore. He's going to say Alexandria of Egypt. Why not? That's a good place to found. Is this the Alexandria? This is the Alexandria. Ah, yes. The library one. Yes. And it always freaks me out when I see these cities are founded. Like, when Alexander's getting there, there's a few sparse villages, and he decides, no, this is going to be one of the largest cities of the ancient world now. Okay. Okay, cool. I guess someone needs to make that decision, apparently. (laughs) And we actually have an omen of the future prosperity of Alexandria. Oh. Because Plutarch tells us that when the borders of the city were being marked out, there wasn't any chalk or white earth to delineate the borders. Mm -hmm. So they decided to just use flour. That'll do. Oh, I guess. Yeah. So they draw a large circular area for the city, but it's flour. It attracted birds. Right. And there are so, so many different types of birds from all over, many different types, coming over to eat all the flour. And Alexander was originally a bit concerned about this because... <laughs> yep, not you know, the Does plan. this mean the city is going to be destroyed by invaders? What's going on? But no, his seers tell him, actually, this is going to be fine. This is a prophecy that actually the new city is going to be extremely rich and feed every kind of person from all over the world. Yeah, wouldn't you know it? That, uh, yes, Alexander, <laughs> this is a good omen indeed, isn't it, fellas? This yes, is yes, it fine. is. fine. Please don't kill us. We are scared. <laughs> but while in Egypt, Alexander has still some sightseeing to do because there's a famous oracle in the oasis at Siwa where you can speak to the oracle of Zeus Amon. The syncretic merging of Zeus and the local Egyptian god Amon. So Alexander heads over, and the travel is long and hard through the desert, and they ran out of water halfway through, and they were just saved from dying of thirst by a miraculous storm that replenished the water. Lucky. But at long last, Alexander arrives at the oasis, and as soon as he's there, the head priest greets him, saying, Welcome, son. And that he specifies, it is the god Zeus Amon that is calling you this way. Right. The priest then prophesies that Alexander was destined to rule all over the world, that he will be undefeated until he became a full god. And he also announced to Alexander, yes, your father was actually Zeus. You are the son of a god, my child. This is a vision he's having? This is a guy talking to him. Oh, I see. This is an Egyptian guy saying, hey. (laughs) 
You are the greatest ever. All of your suspicions. Yes. yes. And apparently Alexander had a private meeting with the Oracle, but he would never reveal what he had been told. He just exited the tent with a new purpose. And he wrote to his mother in secret that, that he had had this great vision. And he would tell her as soon as he arrived home. But hey, now Alexander has the Mediterranean and he needs to fight Darius. So let's go. So Alexander heads over with his troops, heads out of Egypt. They have been replenished with supplies and they head towards Mesopotamia. He crosses the Euphrates and manages to meet Darius's army just outside Gaugamela. And as we saw last time, Darius sent messages once more to Alexander offering all the land east of the Euphrates, we can share the empire, you can have my daughter, just <laughs> stop, please. You've burnt like half the cities in my empire, just please, please stop. Just take uh, whatever you want, I don't, I, uh, please, just stop. Yes. At which point Parmenion, who was a general under Philip and who is slightly older, slightly more prudent than Alexander, when they receive the message, he tells Alexander, Alexander, if I were you, I would accept this peace right. treaty. They're literally giving you anything you want. Like, ask for anything. Exactly. And Alexander replies, I'd also accept if I were you. Oh, this man! <laughs> Fucking hell. Oh, this little spoiled brat. I can't with him. <laughs> you. Which is also where some people argue that if Philip was on this expedition, Philip would have taken it. And would have shared the empire because he was a more prudent man. He would have yeah. thought about how do I govern Iran a from Macedon? How yeah. does this work? A reasonable-sized empire that will not immediately fall, and that you know. This... But no, Alexander schools Parmenion and sends Darius a message saying, "Asia can't have two kings, just as the Earth can't have two suns. If you want to surrender, please do. Otherwise, I'll beat you tomorrow morning." I mean, like, it's so ballsy of him, but, like, yeah, I mean, that's, you know. That's I, mean, how you... I want to hate him, but I admire the balls. Yeah, I just, <laughs> like, the, ah, the sheer damn. audacity of this. <laughs> Mostly because if Alexander dies here, he lost everything. There is nothing left yeah. for him. But no, he's decided, I like those odds. Yeah, Screw yeah, it's you. exactly the, like, double or nothing. What will it be, you know? Yeah, and well, just works put out it for all him, doesn't it? In there, yep. And so, with tensions high before the battle, we're told that the camp followers divide themselves into a Macedonian and Persian camp mm -hmm. with their own Alexander and Darius, and they have this mock battle with sticks and stones hitting, hitting each other. At which point, all the officers hear of this and tell them to stop. What are you doing, you idiots? The battle's tomorrow, and don't hurt yourselves. You know, you need to be ready for action. And they inform Alexander, and Alexander thinks, Ooh, I know mm. how to make this look good. Huh. You, fake Alexander. You, fake Darius. Fight. I and he equips the fake Alexander, gives him the best weapons, wonderful armor, gloriously outfitted. And Parmenion's son arms the fake Darius. Do you want to guess who wins? Oh, I don't know. Um, hmm. I wonder who got the better <laughs> weapons and the better skills. Yeah, I wonder who was told, absolutely do not try to win, lose this, right. make it look good, or I will murder you. Oh, what are you talking about? It was totally not rigged. No. 
Oh, it was a fair fight. It was just an omen from the gods, as you can yeah. well expect. And the fake Alexander won! What do you know? Oh, surprise! Oh my god, yay! It's really good, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so the fake Alexander was gifted 12 villages for the good omen. Congratulations, good man. So as we saw last time, at the 30th of September, 331, the two armies fought and Alexander shattered the Achaemenid defense. He kept Darius's flanks occupied and personally charged in the center towards the King of Kings, and once again Darius fled. And once again, Alexander couldn't catch him. Alexander had to turn back because the Persian cavalry had begun to attack Alexander's baggage train, so mm. Alexander had to turn around, but the battle was won. The last great Achaemenid army has been destroyed. Okay. So now Mesopotamia is free for the taking for Alexander. Yeah. Alexander marches into Babylon in a triumphal procession. This great and beautiful city is now his. The governor is appropriately rewarded for having opened the gates. Uh-huh. He is kept in his post. And then Alexander enters the new capital of Susa. And we have a couple of fun scenes about what happens when he tries to take the role of King of Kings. Hmm. Because at first, Alexander enters the palace of Susa and sat on Darius's throne. Right. Now, you remember that Alexander is a short fellow. Yes. So his feet don't reach the stool that Darius <laughs> reached. So his I feet are dangling I off the throne. This. I can relate to this so much. Oh, I feel your pain, Alexander. <laughs> yeah. So his feet are dangling off the throne. <laughs> a servant, quick thinking, basically takes a nearby table and puts it under his feet and says, okay, this makes it's, it look better. This works. But then one of the palace eunuchs sort of bursts out into tears, saying, Oh no, this was the table where Darius had his last meal. Oh no, what a dishonor for the king of kings that something so terrible should have happened. Uh, do you wish for death, <laughs> eunuch? Apparently, Alexander doesn't kill him. Oh! Apparently, Alexander was a bit concerned. He was like, oh, no, wait, actually, I maybe shouldn't defend all the Persians. I should maybe just remove the table. But his men actually say, no, 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 Alexander, since you did this involuntarily, this is just an omen. It just means that you have fully overcome Darius. Clearly, you did this involuntarily. This just happened. It means that you are now standing over Darius. So, other good omen. Hooray. And we also have another incident which shows a bit of culture clash between the Macedonians and the Persians because Alexander still has the women of Darius' family mm-hmm. yeah. in his entourage and he goes to Darius' mother and offers her some fine cloth and says listen if you like I could have someone teach you and your granddaughters all princesses how to weave this cloth mm-hmm. but the queen mother at this point bursts into tears and is extremely offended by this fact because among the Persians, this is something that only servants do. Oh, I see. It's like handing a bunch of princesses a bucket and a mop saying, don't worry, my servants will tell you how to clean the palace. It'll be cool. Yeah. Oof, I see that. Yeah, yeah. A bit of a faux pas, but Alexander's apparently gracious enough and he says, no, 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 actually, there's a huge misunderstanding. Yeah, this is not what I meant. This is, yes. Yeah, my sisters actually wove this cloth. I just meant it as a nice as gesture. As actual compliment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just do this in Macedon. Sorry. And this is sort of the theme of the next episode that we're going to see because... Oh, the clash of cultures. Things are okay. getting difficult because so far Alexander presented himself as a liberator to all. 
the local people. And the Egyptians, <laughs> he says, ah, I'm finally to give you Egyptians. To the Greeks, he's like, ah, I'm fine to give you freedom to the Greeks. To, Except to Babylon, it's all ah, under you're me, free now. So, you know, yeah, of course. not really. <laughs> and more like under And if you management. resist, I will murder all of you. So, eh, you know. Eh, you know, but... So far, he's shown himself as, well, at least I'm not the Achaemenids. You remember those guys. Ugh, look at me. I'm bright and new and I have a shiny army. But this isn't going to work when you're trying to invade Iran. You can't just say, uh, the Achaemenids. (laughs) Oh, you mean like (laughs) the people who are governing us? Yeah, the people who had governed us for centuries and were doing a pretty good job so far. Yeah. Yeah, those people. And yeah, so he needs to slowly adopt more... Iranian customs to be accepted further east and be seen as, well, the legitimate king of Asia, the legitimate king of kings, as he would like to be. And also, this is the point where the army starts to grumble, especially the older members, Philip's generation, Parmenion. They say that, well, the Achaemenids aren't a threat anymore. Why should we go invade Iran? We can't control it stably. Let's just stop here. You know, Babylon is cool. Susa is cool. That's Pretty much as far as we can get, honestly. But no, Alexander wants more. He must of course. take the empire. He must finish the job. And so he marches towards Persepolis, the great capital, the one with all the palaces from Darius I and Xerxes I, and all the relics of the Golden Age. And Alexander manages to march through, and he has a bit more trouble because the Persian Royal Road is guarded. Mm-hmm by several local garrisons, which block key passes and make it a bit longer for him to cross. So he's not exactly defeated, but it takes him a long while. Mm -hmm. Also along the way, Alexander encountered a group of uh, Greek captives who had been mutilated by the Persians. Oh. And this will make Alexander look nicer to you. (laughs) Because we're told that Alexander told these men, nobody can consider their condition in life superior to yours because... I recognize the service that you did. I recognize that you fought honorably, that you are great men. And he weeps with them for what was lost. Hmm. And he then gives them a choice saying, listen, if you want, you can stay here. This is part of my new empire. Feel free to stay as honored members, or you can return to Greece, whatever you like. Just let me know. Hmm. And ultimately, these men in the end decided to choose to stay because, well, at this point, they had had Persian families and they were worried that If they returned to Greece, people wouldn't know why they had been mutilated and would just laugh at them. So they decide, you know what, it's better to stay here where people know us and we have our own family. So, see, Alexander can be nice when he wants, occasionally, sometimes, maybe. Mm -hmm. So Alexander finally arrives in the city of Persepolis. One, he has almost all the capitals. He's just missing Ekbatana. And in January of 330, he officially becomes king of Persia, according to our metrics. And he gave his men free reign of the lower city, so the regularly inhabited part, but not the palaces and all that. And so there's an entire day of looting the city. Not fun. Mm. But then Alexander opens the treasury of the whole Achaemenid Empire, and he looks inside and he has dollar signs for eyes, (laughs) because he sees... An obscene amount of money. It is apparently equivalent to what the Athenian Empire, at its peak, could have made in taxes in 300 years of continuous taxing. Oh my god. Alexander will never have money problems again. Yeah, uh, yep. Right, yep. Solved. 
everything is solved. He is Damn. now richer than anyone he has ever known. His soldiers are richer than what Macedonian kings used to be doing well. Unbelievable. In fact, he immediately pays his soldiers 10 years pay to make up for everything, make sure they stay loyal. And they enjoy Persepolis. They enjoy the wonders that's of the city. Nice. I wonder, because, you know, if you have the money, that's good and all, right? But, like, if mm -hmm. you do not have the time to use it... If, <sighs> like, I would love to get 10 years pay just so I, I can take 10 years off, right? Yeah. Like, that's the whole point. Yeah, you'll find next episode that the soldiers kind of agree. They're yeah, like, I, yeah, yeah. But what am I going to do with all this money? Especially because, you know, I have a relatively enjoyable job. You know, being a soldier and putting your life at risk and doing all yeah, these Yeah, if you could really potentially be things. killed just by doing yeah. your job, you want to have a chance to enjoy that massive pile of cash you have. But yeah, so now Alexander and his men rest for the winter in Persepolis. It's unclear why exactly they're not just chasing after Darius and Ecbatana right now. Mm -hmm. But it might be either because it's winter and the mountains of Media would be a bit difficult to go through. So it'd be a bit of a pain. Also, Peter Green, who's the author of the book I'm using mainly here, suggests that it might have been that Alexander was just waiting for the new year in spring, in, in April when kings were usually confirmed, so that he could be officially confirmed as king of kings. But that year, the festival was not celebrated. Mm. So in May th of 330, Alexander gets a twinkle in his eye and decides, I should burn this entire city to the ground. You know the glories of the golden age of the Achaemenid Empire. You know all the historical and literary sources for the Achaemenid Empire that we don't have. Right. You know those very flammable sources. Uh-huh. Alexander sets fire to the main religious and political centers of Persepolis, annihilating the city to the point that there is still fire damage visible today, and it is ruined entirely. Don't we love destroying pieces of history and culture and art? It's yeah. just wonderful when humans do that. Wow. Yeah. Love it. Now you know why he's called Alexander the Destroyer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, deserved. Yeah. And Parmenion reportedly told Alexander that he would be a fool to burn what was now his, but that's not going to stop Alexander, is it? And we get a, a particularly licentious story from a Roman author called Curtius Rufus, mm. who I'll point out just to show his bias is that he's writing just after Caligula. Ah. So he probably has something to say about absolute power corrupting absolutely and all that sort of right, thing. Right, right. Because he gives a very unflattering version of the burning. Because he says that once Alexander arrived at the city, he organized great feasts all day with courtesans all round. The king is paying. It's okay. And we're told that one of these courtesans, specifically Ptolemy's courtesan, claimed in a drunken passion that the Greeks would be extremely grateful to Alexander if he burned down this capital of the Persians, since the Persians had once burned Athens to the ground. It's only mm -hmm. just revenge to destroy it. So one by one, all of Alexander's court agreed. And Alexander said, all right, burn it all down. Went with torches to destroy the entire city. And some of his soldiers ran to the palace with buckets of water because they thought, oh no, what is going on? <laughs> the palace yeah. is burning and the king is in it. Ah, ah. panic. <laughs> But then they saw Alexander carrying torches and 
They just probably looked at each other confused, dropped the buckets and picked up torches themselves and went okay. to burn down Guess the city. we're doing... Put some gasoline in the bucket then. <laughs> yep. Like, well, might as well. And, yeah. So Persepolis is gone. That's why you can't visit. That's why the beautiful, beautiful pieces of it are gone. Oh my That's God. why we don't have Persian sources. It's <laughs> this, gone. You can't see me, but I'm facepalming so hard right now. Yeah. And well, now that Persepolis is gone, Alexander marched towards Media and captures Ekbatana. Mm-hmm. He then receives news that, oh, Darius has been imprisoned. There's a new Achaemenid king. He calls himself Artaxerxes V. <laughs> His name was Bessus, though. We remember him. And well, Alexander tries to catch up with Darius, but fails, and he finds the king of kings dead on the road and has him sent to Persepolis for appropriate burial. If you remember, there are even propaganda stories. Alexander found Darius at death's door. Ah, oh, yes, yes, yes. Darius handed him the empire, sure showing thing. him to avenge him, please. Well, I guess we'll deal with that so-called king, since, you know, it is not his episode. So yeah, it is not we're his not episode, acknowledging him. Because he doesn't rule over Persia. Not a real king. But that'll be next time, because... We've gone halfway through Alexander's reign. He is now officially king of Persia. So Mm. in the next episode, you'll see Alexander the Great, king of Persia. And we'll see, well, what happens when he goes further east? What happens when he tries to come home? Yeah. We'll find out. It's going to be exciting. And and then we'll have to see what happens after him. (laughs) Who can live up to Alexander? Who can make up for this? Oh, I am very curious to see where the empire is going to end up. And what, what happens to Hephaestion? Do right. they get cute couple oh. names? Do they exchange lanyards? I don't know. Something. Do they get a grave together? Like Achilles and Patroclus? You'll have to find out. Right, Will. Oh, I have a whole thing about Alexander's body next time. Stay tuned. I'm excited. Ooh. Fun. Okay. I am very excited. So I guess, you know, no ranking today. Sorry. No, this um, is halfway through. We'll get all your ranking needs next time. On the next episode. So, yeah, hopefully you enjoyed the episode so far. Stay tuned for next time. Yeah, if you want to rate us and review us on wherever you get your podcasts, that's excellent. We really appreciate it. It It's always very helpful. It helps. Thanks to everyone who's left a review so far. It's always very nice to hear what you have to say. You have very kind words. Yes, we appreciate all of them. So thank you very much. It's always great to see. All right. And uh, yeah, then in that case, I guess we'll see you next time and uh, have a good week. Have a good week. Goodbye. Bye.